All right, back to Philippians chapter 3. We started here last week, and the idea behind it was that I want to give my life, I hope you want to give your life, I want our church to be a part of mattering for the kingdom of God. We talked about a sermon that John Piper gave in which he declared that we do not want to waste our lives in any way, that there is nothing that we want to do to waste what God has given us, the opportunity that he has given us to live a life passionately devoted to him making a difference for his kingdom. And so in Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays out his idea of what it looks like. And we're going to read that entire passage again. And I'm going to give you the other three points to the sermon. Now, don't fear because last week was an entire message on one point. We will not be here for an hour and a half. All right. And all God's people said. All right. So Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1 says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteous that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I now consider a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as a dung so that I may gain Christ. Be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But the one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the price promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now last week we talked about this and we talked about that Paul gives us the characteristics of lives that aren't wasted. We started with the first one. I'm just going to hit that first point really quickly again and remind us of what we talked about. And that is that people that don't waste their lives treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. They consider everything else to be loss or, as Paul uses the word, dung, poop, trash. We talked last week that those of us that are followers of Christ have to value Christ above everything. It's like the man who finds a treasure in the field and he buries it again and goes back and sells absolutely everything he has to buy the field in order to get the treasure. That when we come to know Christ, we value him above everything this world has to offer. The second thing that we see for those of us that are following Christ to not waste our life is not only we treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer, we also trust Christ to provide everything we could ever need. 
This is what happens. Paul says that about the fact that I have considered all of this a loss, except for knowing Christ. That I consider them as dung that I may gain Christ. And he tells us in this passage here that what he does is that he puts his life on the reality that he wants Christ and to be found in him. That everything on this earth pales in comparison to that. Everything we can have in life pales in comparison to that. That nothing that we could capture on our own comes close to being compared to knowing Christ, to being found in him. And then he gives us some pictures of why that's so important. I just want to say real honestly that when I say trusting Christ to provide everything that they could ever need, most of you, when I say that, immediately think materialistically. That God will provide all the food I need. The housing that I'll need. The support that I need. That God will provide for every need, you think, physical needs. Because that's how our brains are wired. And yet when Paul talks about it in this passage, he doesn't talk about physical needs. He talks about the fact that Christ has provided everything we need spiritually, which is much more important than our physical needs. For instance, he says immediately after this that because he is found in Christ, and if we are found in Christ, we can trust Christ that he has covered our sins. So what it says right here, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Now, we the word righteousness there is used, and we use that in church a lot of times, and we kind of throw that out there, and it's one of those theological words we sometimes assume everybody knows. But the word righteousness just means being right with God, being pure, clean, being cleansed before Him, making sure that we are on the same level when it comes to our sin as God. And Paul makes the point here that we could never do that on our own. No matter how good your good is, no matter how impressive your list of accomplishments are, you are inadequate when it comes to the righteousness that you find in yourself. And the ultimate question that every person has to answer that lives on this earth is how can I, a sinner, be made right or righteous with a holy and righteous God? Christianity is unique. Almost every other religion has a list of do's and don'ts, of ways to take away your sin and to gain acceptance. Throughout its 2,000 year history, Christianity has been known to even try to make that on their own through being able to pay for forgiveness or do it in this exact way or say it in this formula and God will forgive you. It's the same kind of idea as here's a list of do's and don'ts. When I grew up in a Southern Baptist youth group, First Baptist Church in Dyersburg, Tennessee, there was a definite list of things that as a Christian you should do and things that you shouldn't do. But it was more than just, hey, because we have been bought with the blood of Christ, because because Christ has forgiven us, let's live our lives for his glory. It was that we were in some way attaining more righteousness because of the actions that we were doing. That was never spoken, but it was kind of understood. The old Baptist joke is you knew that you didn't smoke or chew or girl, girls that do. That's what you didn't do. Now, the truth is that Scripture makes it clear that no matter how good we think we are, it 
is nowhere near where it has to be. The one that, phrase that we use or that I think about all the time is in Isaiah when it says, and I think I even brought this up last week, that our best deeds, that our righteousness, that's the good stuff that we do. That's the things that you think you would put at the top of the resume, that that stuff is filthy rags before the Lord. And so Paul says, one of the things that I know is that I treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer because he's going to meet every need I have. And the biggest need I have is for my sin to be forgiven. And scripture says that we don't do it through our righteousness, that it's not because of what we've done, but it says because of a righteousness that comes from him. We just sang about it. Jesus paid it all. Not part, not a down payment. He paid it all. And because of that, the need of our lives that we cannot take care of ourselves has been taken care of for us. And all it requires is for us to trust in that payment and ask Him to apply His righteousness to our lives. A minute ago, and I was talking about the biggest problem we have, or the biggest question we have to answer is, how can I, as an unrighteous sinner, be made right with holy God? And I talked about righteousness being on the same level of sin with God. And that is a preposterous... Even as I was saying that out of my mouth right here, I was like, that's a preposterous thing to say. But here is what makes the gospel great news. is because when we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, and His blood has washed us clean from our sin, it is His righteousness, which is on par with God, that God sees on on our lives. So the need of our sins being covered is taken care of. Secondly, the need of our restoration happening even when this life is over happens. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. We know that Christ in his power, in his resurrection, is given to us. The word there, as you may have heard, if you've heard sermons about this, is dunamis, which is the word from which we get dynamite. That doesn't mean that God is dynamite. It just means that his power is unbelievable in its effectiveness and that we have that power when we trust in him. How do we survive in an era of suffering and pain and even persecution is that we know that the promise of God is that one day he is going to restore all things and that the dead in Christ will rise first and those of us that are still alive will be caught up in the air together with them and so we will be with the Lord forever. We live in this day because we know that God has promised us and is giving us the need of our heart which is eternal life with him. Again, when I hear when I hear in my mind, hey, he's going to take care of your needs, I think of the fact that he's going to give me something to eat tonight. But God is thinking of the fact that I'm going to cover your sins and I'm going to give you an eternal home where you never have to worry about anything in your life. What's better, a sonic hot dog or eternal life with God? That shouldn't be a debate, by the way, right? But you get what I'm saying. The way that we think about this and bring it down to a level that's not even what God would, would, would think about. You'll see us Lewis quote. We're, we're kids in the alley making mud pies when God has a vacation at sea offered up to us. 
One day, we're going to spend eternity with Him. He is taking care of our sins in the past and the present, and He is taking care of our future. And then He also gives us the need we have of true satisfaction in Him. Now, we're going to get this from a weird spot, but He says that most of us would agree with all of this. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection. We are amen, amen, bring it, preacher, let's go, come on. But then He says, my goal is to know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. Like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I'm okay with the power of the resurrection. I'm okay with knowing Jesus. I'm okay with the righteousness that comes from God. I, I don't know about this suffering. Here's Paul's understanding, though. If I've already declared that everything this world has to offer is a loss or can be a detriment to knowing Christ. If I've already said that I write loss or I consider it dung over everything this world has to offer in comparison with knowing Christ, then what have I really lost when I suffer anyways? I want you to think for a minute. What is suffering really? And I don't mean to minimize that it's hard at all. We have all been through very difficult moments and it's hard and it brings tears and it is agonizing. But in reality, almost everything, if not everything in life that causes suffering is the loss of something the world offers. A job, a home, health, a reputation, family. And I'm not minimizing that there's tragedy in that. But almost all of that is something that this world offers that is physical or emotional and tied to this world. And if we already think of that not as unimportant, but as a loss in comparison to knowing Christ, and that if in our suffering we somehow connect to Christ even more, then it is our gain that happens in the midst of that and not loss. Now that flies in the face of a culture that is built on minimizing suffering and maximizing comfort. But that's never the biblical understanding of what we should be doing. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, make your life as easy as possible. Never does it promise that God says that God will make you as comfortable as you can possibly be. And here's the thing. When we focus our lives or the lives of our church around minimizing suffering and maximizing comfort, our lives will be choked by the pleasures of this world. And we will not fulfill the call on our church or our lives to fulfill the Great Commission because that is hard work. He gives you everything that you need. That doesn't mean a new coat. Although he is so good that he does provide all that stuff for us. But he forgives our sins. He promises an eternal place with him. And he allows us to know him even in the midst of our most difficult days. So that he can use us for his glory. People that don't waste their lives understand that no matter what situation they find themselves in, they can trust that the Lord has already taken care of all of their real needs. Third thing is, people who don't waste their life pursue 
Christ with obsessive passion. So he gets through that, that I'm going to obtain the resurrection from the dead. And he says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it. Because I have been taken hold of by Christ. I don't got to consider it, but one thing I do is I press on. I move on. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. There's a word in here that's interesting as it's describing this effort of Paul to press on, to go forward, to make it happen. It's the exact same word he uses a few verses earlier to describe the zeal he had for persecuting the church. And it is to describe a 180 that has happened in his life where he went from a zeal and a passion to persecute the church to a zeal and a passion to follow and to know Christ. And he gives us a picture of what this looks like. He talks about this fact throughout this passage about a holy dissatisfaction of a comfortable Christianity that allows us just to sit and to soak or to just to be. And we've created a culture in America where it's easy to be a follower of Christ. We may get made fun of a little bit. The news may not like some of our opinions. But for the most part, it does not impinge upon our lives daily to follow Christ. Or at least the way most of us do it. It doesn't challenge us. Because our Christianity, our form of it, lines up remarkably well with our social status, our political affiliations, and what we already think. The way that we want church to function magically lines up with our own desires and our own preferences and our own passions apart from Christ. Paul makes the point that I need everything stripped away and I need to focus on what God has called me to do. And someone that is passionately pursuing Jesus Christ will be dissatisfied with a comfortable Christianity that is lukewarm in its existence. This summer we're going to walk through, if God willing, as I feel the Lord has called us to, this summer we're going to walk through the seven churches of Revelation. And perhaps the most famous of that is Laodicea, and so I won't give you that whole sermon right now, but you know that story, right? He says that uh, you were neither hot nor cold, I wish you were one or the other, but because you are lukewarm, I am going to spew you out of my mouth. And the idea behind that is that if you are just kind of lackluster in your commitment to the Lord, that is not what God had intended when he saved you, was then to you for to sit and soak until the end of time. That you are to passionately pursue both Christ and the calling He has on your life. That as a church, we are to passionately pursue Christ and the calling He has on our lives. And one of the ways we do that is we understand how hard Christ pursued us. This is what He says there in verse 12. I want to take hold of it. I want to know it. I want to know and take hold of who Christ is and knowing Him because... I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. That word there literally means that he has seized me. He has captured me. He has come after me. He has desired a relationship with me. And he has sought me. He has chased me down. He is the hound of heaven coming after my soul. And when you realize that the Father... The Son, the Spirit, have been actively pursuing you when you was nothing in you that would require them to do that. Then you want to find out why they love you so much. 
the story of the prodigal son, really should be called the story of the prodigal father. We've talked about that before. But in that story, the most remarkable thing in that story is not that the son, when he has nothing left, eating on the pods that pigs were eating, decides, hey, I ought to go home and give that a shot. That's not the most remarkable thing about the story, although it's significant. The most remarkable thing about the story is not the older brother refusing to celebrate his brother returning. Although there's a lesson in that for most of us in our culture today. The most amazing thing about that story is that when the father sees the son who betrayed him and told him basically you would be better off to me if you were dead. Coming down the road, he hikes up his tunic and begins to run. A demeaning and embarrassing thing for a dad to do in that society. Because all he cared about was getting to his son. We've sung a song here before many times called Reckless Love. And there were some people that were really not happy with that song. I I know that shocked you that there are people that criticize Christian music out there. I don't know if you know that or not, right? Um. They weren't happy with that song because it depicts God, that word reckless love. And that he, it, it, it says it almost sounds like God's lovesick in this song. Pursuing and going. And yet scripture teaches us that he has come after us with everything he has to seize us and to capture us. When you understand that, you begin to turn your attention towards him. And he talks about this single-minded focus that he has. He says, one thing I do in verse 13. That's not a great translation of that. It's hard to translate it, but the, the, uh, the better idea about that, behind that phrase, the one thing I do in verse 13 is, this one thing captivates me. This one thing captivates me completely. This is the focus of my life. I think about the people in Scripture that were focused on the wrong thing. And so the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus has kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, there's this one thing. And he walks away sad because he can't give that up. Or Martha, who is in the house with Mary. And she wants Jesus to get on to Mary for not helping her with the housework. And Jesus says, you're lacking in this one area. She sees what matters. Psalm 27 uses the phrase, this one thing I know. And Paul says, what captivates me is a passion for finding and following Christ. Without distraction. The last thing is, for those that don't waste their life, is they look forward to the prize that is before us. They look forward to the prize of his praise. Verse 14. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul used uh, athletic imagery a lot. He spoke to the people around him with athletic imagery a lot. It's one of the reasons I think his day in writing could be to a culture that was similar to ours because athletics was a major part of what they understood and did. And so when he talks about I pursue as my goal, he's thinking about a race here. When you think about 1 Corinthians 9, he says that there is a race and I am running it and not everybody that runs wins the prize. I am running as one to win the prize. And the idea that he is completely focused 
on this prize that is promised by God's heavenly call. And I think that is the completion of our salvation. That is the reward that comes to us in heaven. That is eternity with Christ. But that that ought to motivate us today to live our lives devoted to Him and for His glory here and now. And that it ought to remove all the distractions from our lives. It requires complete focus on what is ahead and what God is calling us to do. And that completion is coming. And we don't know how many days we've been given. But God has called me in these days to extend His kingdom. And so I'm going to do all that I can with everything I have to see His kingdom expanded. And I want to live my life with a focus that is squarely set on that. I was watching a basketball game late last night. I didn't intend to, but everybody gone to bed. I was had looked over my sermon notes again, had prayed over some of the stuff that we're doing with here and now, and just kind of was sitting there and not ready to go to sleep. And so I um, saw a notice on my TV. I have one of those TVs that tells me, hey, a basketball game's close, even people you don't care about. And it was UCLA and Arizona State. And so I flicked over that. We'll see the end of this game. It says it's close in the final few seconds. And found it interesting. There's a guy that plays for UCLA that actually played for CPA here in Nashville at one time. I saw him play as an eighth grader. Um, and he was the best player on the court in an eighth grade game. I mean, in a high school varsity game when he was an eighth grader. He's the point guard for UCLA. They had not led the entire game. And in the last few seconds, the last ten seconds, he drives to try to score. He doesn't. He misses it. A guy gets a rebound, misses it, tries to go back up and gets fouled with .7 seconds left. Tie game. And he goes to the free throw line. First thing I thought is how different this scene would have looked if there were fans in the stands. And I don't know what would be better or worse. A quiet arena with everybody looking at you. He's basically got two free throws to win the game. I watch him, look at him. I don't know this guy. He's a freshman. True freshman. Dribbles twice, puts up the shot, misses. One shot. I notice on the line, because sometimes you, when the arena's there, you can't hear all this. I hear there's chat. You know how with sports now, you can hear sometimes, sometimes it's not a good thing. You can hear the chatter that's going on around there. And the guy sitting next to him is under his breath talking to him the whole time. Everybody from the other team is staring at him while he's getting ready to take the shot. His own team is not looking at him on purpose, right? Now, I thought about how many kids say, man, I'd love to be in that moment, the last second shot to win the game. And I thought, they're all lying. Right? Because in that moment, that is nerve-wracking. What I noticed, the second shot over the first was a look in his eye that was steely and resolved. He didn't look anywhere else but the front of the rim. Took his two dribbles, bent his knees, put it up, and it went in. And I thought about how many of us live our lives when we should be focused completely on the things that God has called us to do. And we have allowed the world to distract us. So many of our lives are distracted by just life, by suffering, by uncertainty, by certainty in things that don't really matter. Churches are 
hamstrung, are tied up by distractions of things that don't really matter. And yet God has called us to completely focus our lives. One thing, to know Him, the power of His resurrection, to live with Him in that suffering. Forgetting what is behind, I press on towards the goal, knowing that He has a future waiting for me. My call to you today is the same as last week at the end. Don't waste your life. Treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. Trust in Christ to provide everything you really need. Pursue Christ with obsessive passion and look forward to the prize that Christ has for you. May we as a church be faithful to that call. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in these few moments that we have to respond. Lord, that you would just give us wisdom and help us to understand exactly what it is that you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name I pray.